0: Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this program contains the names and voices of those who have passed. Welcome to Speaking Out. We're
1: mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining,
0: exploration,
2: and energy. Talk a little bit about uh, indigenous constitutional recognition. Those
0: two With Larissa Behrendt, it's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. Aboriginal football is represented by the the, the, the blokes from uh, from LARPA and, and, and Redfin because there was no other sports, you, you know. Uh, there was no golfers. The closest they got to golf was was uh, carrying the, the rich white players' bags as caddies. And uh, some people could only look back on the players who represented us some years back. You see what they come through to get where they were because, you know, none of them had a pair of football boots even.
1: Fifty years of the Kurri Knockout, a history of Aboriginal rugby league in New South Wales. This is Speaking Out, I'm Jay McAllister. The Kurri Knockout marks its 50th anniversary this weekend in Nowra. Founded by a group of Aboriginal men in Redfern, the Kurri Knockout was first intended to provide a platform for Indigenous men who were often overlooked in recruitment. A celebration of Aboriginal culture through connection to Rugby League, the knockout has evolved into the largest Indigenous gathering in the country. Since its inception in 1908, Rugby League has proved extremely popular amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Nationally, 19% of all registered Rugby League players are Indigenous. Despite great representation today... For many years, Aboriginal involvement largely took place on missions and reserves. So what impact did social policy have on the uptake of rugby league by Aboriginal men? Where did the sport sit within the context of Aboriginal self-determination? And what role does footy play in asserting cultural identity in contemporary Australia? A Sakuri knockout marks 50 years. This week on Speaking Out... We explore the historical relationship between Aboriginal people and the sport of rugby league. New South Wales Rugby League star Luttrell Mitchell stands with his chest out as he leads a passionate war cry before the NRL Indigenous All-Stars game. It's an expression of his Aboriginal culture, strength, resilience and survival. It's also a reflection on how far the game has come in terms of the inclusion of Aboriginal players.
3: Well, look, sport was another limiting barrier. I mean, let's face it. I mean, the, the colour bar was used to prevent Aboriginal participation, except and we had this discussion before from boxing where people could get killed in the ring. But there was a resentment. There was just this this racism and prejudice and oppression of, you know, um, holding Aboriginal people, not at arm's length, but not even street lengths, but, you know, uh, miles of length. Uh, from participation in sport
0: a lot of the people who came down throughout the 60s and 40s 50s 60s 70s uh, were virtual transient people who come looking for a better life or well, some of those sons have grown growing up to be be uh, you know an international uh, player and they were bred in places like down the block at Redfern and through La Perus and further down the coast, out towards the mountains and places like this, and to start to merge to the country areas, and they, they'd all come to Sydney. And now it's just unbelievable the, the heights they've reached from being mission kids.
1: Throughout history, dozens of New South Wales-born Aboriginal men have made their mark on the sport of rugby league, to the joy of fans across the country.
4: Bottom, who's kicked 34 goals during the season takes the kick from just short of halfway. Inside Nathan Merritt, there it is, try number five. Can he get it to Korowa? Korowa's going infield. He's inside Sparks, and there he goes. The golden flash is on his way. Lyons has made a half break. He heads for the line. He's over. Lions has scored from the scrum. Cliff Lions. Stewart across the Daly. Daly. Laurie Daly. Oh, that is magnificent. Fullback Eric Sims. And it's there.
1: Nationally, data shows that 19% of all registered rugby league players are Indigenous. It's a stunning number. Because, as historian John Maynard points out, Aboriginal men haven't always been accepted within the game.
3: It's an interesting thought, isn't it? You know, why rugby league, you know? And and, and we know there's enforced barriers for, through most of that game's history from us playing the game. And not just rugby league. I mean, up until the late 60s, you could count on two hands the number of Aboriginal players in AFL or, or rugby league. It actually got to go. But... Um, we made our own teams in earlier, earlier times. We were denied, you know, to, to actually have a go, you know, and so we, we made our own game, teams and had our own games. I mean, in the country areas, that must have been because of being able to watch games and see the game being played and then sort of mimicking it and, and taking the game on. And, of course, we know we were, we were good at it.
1: Let's go back to the start. Where did it all begin? Sure, Aboriginal people loved the game. They were talented, skillful, and enjoyed playing. However, Aboriginal participation in rugby league has occurred in the context of race-based social relations and the state's historical control over Aboriginal lives. To understand the intersection of these issues, we need to get our heads around the politics of the early 1900s. Here's John Maynard once more.
3: Yeah, sure. The the New South Wales Aboriginal Protection Board was established in 1883, but it was not till around 1910 that Aboriginal people, you know, the changes were made. And it was more stricter from about that point on, because up till then, Aboriginal people were largely left to themselves to govern their own lives, you know, on traditional country, largely, you know, and, and our movement. We were able to move across country and across the state in search of work as well. But from about 1910, the Protection Board began a process of revoking these successful independent Aboriginal farms and forcing Aboriginal groups on the more heavily congested and controlled reserves with limited capacity to have any control over one's own life and decisions. This really escalated by the time the 1930s had come around. And that was probably the height of this, where you know these, these uh, heavily congested and controlled reserves. Now, the, these reserves these tightly controlled one uh, the highlights of those were poor housing health limited or no education the clothing was dulled out here in blankets um, the food was inadequate even who you could marry and who you couldn't marry and where you could go and most people as I said were confined on these heavily restricted areas of tightly controlled um, government Uh, reserves and missions the board also introduced a policy of aboriginal child removal that would see thousands of aboriginal kids removed from their families and placed into institutions the boys to be trained as laborers and the girls as domestic servants of course we know that today as the um, stolen generations and so these were the changes that come in coinciding with the 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 rise i guess of organized rugby league
1: the establishment of Aboriginal missions and reserves would prove influential in Aboriginal men taking up the game.
2: Uh, my name's Heidi Norman. I'm a professor of history and politics at the University of Technology, Sydney. Most missions and reserves had an Aboriginal side, so whether it was Maori Boomerangs or, you know, Burrabidee and all over the state, you know, too too many to mention and, of course, at the risk of leaving somebody out... Um, but most most reserves or missions had an Aboriginal side. And then there are also some interesting examples I came across from approximately 1932 with, um, on the south coast at Unundera with the opening of the picture theatre, the Paramount Picture Theatre. There was an exhibition match between, um, according to the banner, it said Unundera v Abos, So, you know, I would assume that was a mission side, that played the town side to commemorate the opening of the picture theatre. And a bit of an irony, given that it would have been highly unlikely you would have been allowed into the picture theatre, or if you were allowed in, it was under very limited sort of conditions. Um, there are also a couple of other examples. So, for instance, out at Dubbo in 1947, it could have been before or after, there was a side that waratahs, I were called, and it was in the, in the press... Entry, it was a mixed-race side from the Railway Workers' Union, so they could have been around before or after.
1: Early examples of Aboriginal involvement in rugby league are mostly, by the way, of mission teams. But it's important we take a look at the life and career of Jackie Brooks. Jackie Brooks is the first known Aboriginal man playing in a town site, a white team.
2: He's just amazing. There is an incredible archive of local newspapers writing about him in terms of when he was playing on the wing for the Katoomba sides. He also played out in the bush. He trialled for selection in the city-country game. He was certainly so- selected and had a, played a representative game in the region. He missed out on the country selection. He was the playmaker. He was a star many games. He was the, you know the first and last to score, sometimes the only one to score. So he was absolutely pivotal to the side. He was the inaugural Best and Fairest player, uh, and his name was you know, marked on the shield for the cartoon beside. He was not only the Best and Fairest, but then everyone cheered you know, uproariously. So he was someone who was really well-liked, I think. And then he also performed. He sang, he danced, he played the gum leaf... Um, yeah, so he was just an all-round sort of star.
1: Why was it so significant to have him in the team? Why was it such a significant thing to have an Aboriginal person in the team?
2: I haven't come across any other examples of Aboriginal men playing in mainstream sides. We, you know, I mentioned the mixed race side from Dubbo, the Railway Workers Union. But I haven't come across any other examples of a, of an Aboriginal man playing in a town side at that time. But, you know, he was he was lauded in the newspaper reporting. But he also, he worked at the Hydro Majestic and then later at the Carrington on the main street of Katoomba. And there's a lovely inscription there on the pathway. It says, Jackie's in the kitchen. He's always good for a tune. And... Uh, But he worked at the, working at the Hydro Majestic, he took his employer to court for unfair wages, for unpaid wages, and he won.
4: So if there was a
1: colour bar against Aboriginal men, how did someone like Jackie Brooks get a start?
3: It all depends on the area where you were. That's the same as military service. I mean, Aboriginal people were denied military service in many areas, yet for some reason, in some areas, um, white communities were supportive. And this was also the, the same with sporting participation. So, I mean, you, you mentioned Jackie Brooks. Jackie Brooks is another one of those unknown Aboriginal sporting histories. I mean, so he's a later revelation and was a sporting um, rugby league hero in the Katoomba district of the Blue Mountains. I mean, and, but why? What, what was the reason? There was certainly an Aboriginal community in close proximity of the location where he was. Um, But in other areas, Aboriginal people, as I said, were were denied that entry. But, of course, if you were good, I mean, this guy was clearly very, very good footballer, incredible speed, um, a tackling machine, and there are incredible accounts for the newspapers of his exploits on the footy field. So, again, it comes back to, you know, the area where you were were brought up in or you happened to be tied to. And also, there must have been white support in that community. Um, And there there are pockets of that. We've got to recognise that there are certain areas across this state who gave us historically support, where are there are some other areas that continue today to be extremely racist centres. I mean, you know, (laughs) they stand out.
4: Aboriginal children from Moree come to Sydney to play rugby league against youngsters from Cromer Public School near D.Y. The game is organised as part of the National Aborigine Day Ceremonies and the Cromer parents house the Aboriginal guests while they're in Sydney. They're all ready and the game gets underway when Mr Dick Healy, MLA, kicks off. The game is pretty rugged. The boys from Moree have a very big reputation and they show plenty of pace and style. But the Sydney boys have been well coached. It's a fairly even game. original teams played in Sydney earlier this year and both won. But this time the boys from Cromer just have the edge. They're leading 3-0 and they're holding on to that lead. There's no racial discrimination among these youngsters, they're just two teams playing a game of football. Both sides have cheer squads and when the game's over it doesn't really matter which side won.
1: By the middle of the century, we start to see more Aboriginal teams playing in or against mixed-race sides. Professor Heidi Norman has a theory as to why.
2: So I looked at Dawn magazine. So Dawn magazine, I looked at the first edition, started in 1952. So keeping in mind by this time, the Aborigines Protection Board had been replaced in name to the Aborigines Welfare Board, and there was a different orientation... So by nineteen fifty two this is after the second world War, the horrors of scientific racism, and so Dawn magazine you know a less kind way to describe it is that it's a kind of propaganda magazine, and it was really the mouthpiece of the welfare board's policy agenda so it um and at that time it was one of assimilation, so it was about creating disciplined upstanding um citizens out of out of blackfellas and um you know advocating how to you know polish your pearl buttons and knit and dress a house and look after your your husband it was really you know it was a model of the nuclear family and um and you know a key part of that that i i looked at dawn that first edition in 1952 to think about how that magazine and the government's policy agenda what that looked like in relation to rugby league.
1: For many years, Australian Aborigines have been outstanding in boxing and running, particularly in the first. But why is it we do not see more of them in many other sports? Properly trained and developed, the Australian Aborigines should be able to run and swim faster and jump higher and further than the white man. With his keen eyesight, which can spot a school of fish in a line of breakers half a mile off the shore... He should be a keen tennis player, marksman or golfer. Surely the time will come as the Aborigine is assimilated into the white community when he will participate in all these other sports.
2: And what what became apparent is that the Dawn magazine and the Government Welfare Board, they were really encouraging of Aboriginal men participating in rugby league, of mission sides and competitions between missions you know, certainly along the North Coast, for instance, and of, um, you know, of of Aboriginal men competing in rugby league, mostly in those reserves and mission sides of saving up money to travel, of um, families gathering through rugby league. But there was, um, there are a few other points. One is that there was a considerable reference to Kinchilla Boys Home, and if you didn't know any better, it it's depicted as something like a, a children's paradise, which is not in any way reflected in the observances of the men today who live their childhood there. But one key point that comes up is the excitement of the Kinchilla boys playing in the school sides, so playing for Kempsey and uh, then getting selection for the you know, New South Wales representative teams. So that that's a really interesting thing, and the conclusion I came from that close study of all of those references to rugby league in Dawn is that the welfare board saw Aboriginal men and boys from from the from the home, in particular, their participation in rugby league as a way to demonstrate the effectiveness, the efficacy of the welfare board in creating these upstanding, disciplined subjects who were on their way to. Um, to becoming, you know, white citizens, and um, and also how rugby league was a tool. So, say there was a in one entry, there was an outline of a when the superintendent of the board arrived, um, one of the North Coast communities, and he had in attendance the head of the rugby league, local rugby league competition, police, head of the church. So, these are the kind of um, you can see that achieving. Participation in Rugby League was a really... uh, They saw that as a way to leverage their assimilation ambitions.
5: When Captain Cook anchored off the beach in Botany Bay on the morning of April the 29th, 1770, he and his crew were confronted by a group of Australians, curious as to what the white man wanted in this remote part of the world. Today, just on 200 years later... Aborigines still live across Botany Bay from Cook's Landing Place on traditional tribal grounds at La Perouse. This windswept promontory, one of Sydney's forgotten suburbs, still overlooked by the developer, is named after and commemorated for La Perouse, the French explorer whose fleet called here in 1788 and then sailed off into the Pacific where he and his ships were lost. Today, apart from the French captain's memorial, and the collection of houses in need of painting. La Perouse is notable mainly for containing the only Aboriginal reserve within the metropolitan boundaries of any of Australia's capital cities. Here on the reserve itself, and in houses close by, among the local white population, live between two and 300 people of Aboriginal descent. Some claim descent from the tribes who lived on this coast when Cook arrived. Most are from the inland areas of New South Wales, who've come to the city in search of the things that they find hard to obtain these days in the country.
1: In Sydney, two clubs defied this dominant discourse of assimilation. The La Perouse Panthers and Redfern All Blacks forged community links and articulated a distinctive sense of Aboriginal identity.
0: Yeah, well, I'm a Vic Sims. I'm a, I'm a biggible man from La Perouse, where I was born and I was raised and I'm still there today, and so I boast 98% of my bloodline. Lapa people had to persevere because you've got to remember Lapa is the first mission ever uh, discovered on the eastern uh, seaboard of Australia and uh, growing up there wasn't easy but living on a mission didn't, didn't deny us the fact that there was sporting talent in the community. During the Depression years, Lapa would become home to blacks, whites and new
1: migrants who were bound together by the common theme of poverty.
5: Tell me honestly. You're 21 years old now, yeah. you've told me. Have you always been conscious of the fact that you you were different from others? No, never. Have you ever been made to feel conscious about it? No. I, I, I met a lot of friends. Going to
4: school with them, playing sports with them, all functions like that, you know?
0: Well, uh, the footy club started out about the late 1930s, 1940s. And my father and my my Uncles and all that played for for libraries. And they, they played against the local sides like Maruba and Mascot and there were so many teams in the in the local South Sydney area but um, Aboriginal football is represented by the, the, the the blokes from uh, from Lapa and and, and Redfin, because there was no other sports you, you know uh, there was no golfers if it, if it, the closest they got to golf was was uh, carrying the the rich white players' bags as caddies and uh, but they've excelled in everything and and Larpa was a was a spiritual uh area where culture is still
1: alive today. Uncle Vic says by the time he was growing up in the 1950s,
0: rugby league was a mainstay within the local community. You couldn't get home quick enough to play football on our sort of, what we called the flat. It was a flat area, which was a rec- recreational reserve. And, uh, you know, the first thing mother would say after we got home, we said, we're home, ma'am. And, uh, all right, we're going up and have a game of footy on the flat with all the lads. And uh, and so we'd get into it and 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 play until the sun went down, and then after after dinner we'd go up under this lighted area off the street and and play up there too. So it was well bred into us. That's who our uncles and our fathers and our some of some some of uh, uh, the days children's grandfathers and great grandfathers that existed in that era.
4: In Sydney, they call him Lapa after La Perouse. His real name is Bruce Stewart and he's an Aborigine. During the week, Lapa drives a truck for a Balmain electrical store. Before that he was a caddy at the New South Wales Golf Club. But it's not his truck driving that's made him a local idol. He's an idol because he's Lapa Stewart, and just watch him go. The flying winger for Eastern Suburbs Rugby League team. Lapa looks for the try line every time he gets the ball, and he takes a lot of stopping.
0: Some people could only look back on the players who represented us some years back. You see what they come through to get where they were. You know, they they virtually never did, you know, because, you know, none of them had a pair of football boots, even. So they just, uh, you know, just just scrounge, go caddying, carry rich people's golf bags around the the courses that prevailed around LARPA. And then they save up and get themselves a pair of shoes. That's that's the way it worked. There there was hardly any work, you know, uh, for any of the men. There was no dole then, back in those days. It was just... uh, I, mean, I can still remember the last days of the Russians, you know, and they didn't give out football boots along with the, with the, the meat and the, and the flour and the tea and the mm. sugar and the tobacco that they handed out. So, uh, you know, to every success to these young men today. They wear yep. their stripes, you know, and I take great pride in that, and so, so do we all. The Redfern All Blacks were founded in 1944.
1: By this time, inner city Sydney had become home to an ever expanding number of Aboriginal families.
2: The Welfare Board generally were encouraging... They had, like, a push-pull factor of encouraging families to move off the reserves and into either regional centres or industrial centres. So you see the push-pull of the Welfare Board to disperse people from reserves as a way to achieve, a, you know, your integration or enmeshment in, the, you know, white the white suburbs. And at the same time, I think there's certainly a pattern of Aboriginal families leaving the reserves and missions in order to protect the security of their family. So as the removal of children was accelerating, as powers became expanded to remove children, there was a a lot of families moving down to the city following in like a chain migration kind of pattern. So if you had other family here, in those circumstances, the city populations were rapidly increasing, but also employment was just so abundant. You know, workers poured out of Redfern Station, for instance, and uh, work was so abundant in the many factories, uh, light manufacturing uh, around Red- the streets of South Sydney. You could go from one factory to the next, to the next, until you got a job.
5: This is Caroline Street, Redfern, where some 30 Aboriginal and part-Aboriginal families live, sometimes two or three families to a house. Their children play with the children of Australians, Greeks and Italians on the dusty playground and their menfolk go to work in the factories of Sydney like the other men in this area. Their womenfolk hang their laundry on the narrow balconies like their neighbours. Some among them are not renting their houses but buying them, and one such is Ken Brindle. In his house in Caroline Street, he looks after his family and any of his many relatives from the country who care to visit him. Ken Brindle is a labourer. How do they come into the city, and how these 2,000 of them got into Sydney and got houses here? Well... Uh, gradually, uh, a family will, will move its cousins and their cousins into the city. Uh, they tell them that if they come to the city, they can get decent employment, they're not working for uh, pittance, as they do in the country. If, I,
1: if you'd have had more time, I'd like to take you around to some of the family's homes. They're like That's uh, where they're sort of buying their homes and show you just how uh, big an improvement it is on the conditions on reserves the All Blacks played an important role in helping young Aboriginal men adjust to life in the city.
6: Uh, my name's Lyle Munro. Uh, people refer to me as Lyle Munro Jr. I come from Moree, and like a lot of other young people back there in the late 60s and 70s, I'm one of those who gravitated to the, to Redfern. As I understand, the Blacks uh, were formed back in the in the 1940s, joined South City Junior competition, and... Um, I think inherited the name from the Guernseys that South Jersey supplied black jerseys. Some say some of the history dates back to um, the Depression. Uh, some of the history is related to the, um, the returned soldiers. And some of the history says that some of them were responsible for the, uh, the formation of the All Blacks.
1: The team's appeal was in its community pride a further example of the significant shift towards self-determination within Sydney's Aboriginal community.
6: At, at the time, there was a curfew in Redfern, uh, an unofficial curfew that applied to
7: uh,
6: black people, Aboriginal people. It was the time of the formation of the major Aboriginal organisations, legal service and medical service, um, housing company and children's service.
4: 193 Regent Street, Redfern. The storefront home of
6: the it was the time of the formation of the um, National per- Perspective, and uh, Redfern was alive with um, Aboriginal people from all over the country, in particular New South Wales, um, and uh, of course Redfern All Blacks is steeped in, in the political history of the area, um, I think from day one.
5: Springboks, eat your hearts out. These are the Redfin All-Blacks, and they want to go to South Africa. So far, they haven't asked to be flown by the RAAF, but they say the South African government should at least extend the same courtesy to an All-Black team as the Australian government has done for the all-white South Africans. As yet, they're not entirely organised.
4: to
8: elect the captain now, or what? I'll watch from the side and I'll tell you what's going on, what he's not doing and what he's not doing. So you just, want to, you just want to elect our captain now, of that's down there all the time.
5: Part of the problem is that they play league and not union, but they're not too worried by this. In fact, they plan to make up a team of the best black footballers in Australia, even if some of them play Australian rules.
6: If you see photos of the the past uh, All Blacks, you'll see a lot of us who were involved in the formation of the organisations and the the marches back then uh, played for the All Blacks. Uh, Paul Coe played for the All Blacks, uh, Saul Blair, uh, Billy Craigie, Kevin Smith, um, myself, Raymond Swan, also um, uh, people that work in the organisations from the North Coast and the South Coast, and uh, Western New South Wales were very much involved in the the struggle, um, and also in the politics at Red all Blacks were playing because the solicitors and the the Aboriginal field officers from the legal services and the other organisations standing on the front line during these raids. Uh, a lot of those uh, people on the front line then played for Richmond all
2: Described as the world's biggest corroboree, the Currie Knockout is about much more than just the game of rugby league. It's a
0: great opportunity to see, you know, something at a, you know, a happier place and, um, you know, a happier
5: environment. So it's, um, yeah, it's our modern day corroboree, and I love being a part of it
8: catching up
0: with friends, um, playing for the names that are on our chest, um, representing our people, and it's great.
2: There are more than 140 teams competing and there's no shortage of passion or skill.
1: In 1970, the Redfern All Blacks, along with La Perouse, became the foundation clubs of the inaugural New South Wales Aboriginal Rugby League knockout. The Coorie knockout, as it's more widely known.
2: So the knockout was started by six men, um, they were, you know, in their late teens to early twenties. Those men included Victor Wright, Bob Morgan, Dan Rose, Bill Kennedy, George Jackson, and Bobby Smith, and they were all living in and around um, the inner city. So they, um, you know, they just fell in love with the city and the possibilities and excitement of the city. And so they gathered together, and there had been already knockouts being played, so because the the welfare board, you know, in a way authorise those knockouts to take place, but even as the welfare board's hold was weakening, there were still knockouts being held. But the difference with, with the knockout that started in nineteen seventy one is that it was a, intended to be a statewide event and it was run for blackfellas by blackfellas. So there was no sort of sense of the hovering presence of the of government or the welfare board. So they really, they were being strategic as well as they wanted to create the same sort of social environments that they knew from back home.
8: We we, we had hope for success and, uh, you know, for it to kick on and, and do things, but to where it is today, it's, you know, I would have never dreamed of, you know, 64 sides in the men's comp and, you know, all the the 12s and 15s and sometimes the 10s and 8s and and the women. Bill Kennedy is one of
1: the founders of the Curry Knockout. He was born in Walgett but moved to Sydney in the late 1960s.
8: Yeah, it started in uh, Sydney. There was uh, a few of us. We were living in Sydney at, at the time and working... We formed uh, Currie United. We started out; it was uh, Curry Tigers. We we started out with uh, Jimmy Jimmy Little at the time was our first president, and uh, we, we started as Curry Tigers, and then eventually uh, changed to Currie, you know, Curry United. We thought we'd uh, put on a knockout back in 1970, and uh, to see who'd, who'd turn up. There was uh, seven teams, La Perouse, Redfern All Blacks, Kempsey, Walgut, there was a South Coast team and uh, probably a, a Western Sydney team. The knockout
1: began within a complex economic and social context with the emergence of a political movement in Redfern.
2: You know, just I think the creativity and the abiding impulse to take up the challenges... And to take those challenges to the formal institutions of power. And I think, you know, to see Rugby League within that picture of, you know, Aboriginal self determination and, you know, cultural resurgence of demanding a, you know, a rightful place within the nation, it's generally, you don't put Rugby League into that mix, but it's there.
1: Comparisons can be drawn between the formation of the Kurri Knockout and the political aspirations of Aboriginal communities at this
3: time. This was a very significant time period for Aboriginal people. And I mean, again, it was that galvanising in that space because after the 67 referendum, a lot of Aboriginal people were moving from the rural, regional and country areas to the city, which Redfern exploded, you know, with a massive population of Aboriginal people. So it was a very exciting political time for us and we had some great people on the ground and leading leading Aboriginal political rights at that particular point in time.
1: Bill Kennedy says one of the reasons he and his mates formed the Knockout was because Aboriginal players were being overlooked in recruitment.
8: Uh, you know... Yeah you know not not too many people went out to the country you know, uh, scouts and uh, looking at uh, indigenous players uh, uh, you know they, they never got a real opportunity you know their opportunities were really limited and uh, and we thought this could be a way if if the knockout kicked on and what you did and then from those early days we did see that with uh, mark Right. He was a young guy from Moree, and Mark went on, he was only 17, but he was graded Newtown Jets, went on to play New South Wales, and, you know, that was the start of some of this stuff. You know, for us, it was more of an opportunity, you know, to give our our players an opportunity to uh, sort of come to Sydney, but also it was, uh, we seen it as, you know, a As a gathering of Aboriginal people, you know, with strong social benefits and that sort of stuff. And it was a time when, you know, friends and families and whoever had that opportunity to come together. From the 1960s,
1: Aboriginal men began to be seen at the elite level of the game.
5: Uh, Eric, of all those matches in the World Championship, that appeared to, to me as a spectator anyway, as to be the easiest of the four. Would you agree with that? Yes, well, I think so, Norman. At the finish, I thought that, well, I think we, in our first game against France, I think we really give them something and we seem to have knocked them around a bit. And then when they come to the final, I just don't think they could have filled their best side. And, of course, we had plenty of strength in reserve and I think that all counted.
7: Eric Sims. Okay, first and foremost, he is my second cousin. So my family from Karua, which is a small um, Aboriginal mission there, just north of Newcastle, about 40 minutes north. And the Simses are our, – our cousins have still got the Sims there and we're the Perry, So And there's the Saunders. There's a few groups of families. But, yeah, that, that's Eric's mob there. And, um, you know, obviously he played for South, you know, back in the, uh, in the mid-60s, the mid-70s. He played about 200 games there. He was a notable goal kicker, but – but more notably, he was a field goal kicker. He was absolutely sensational at um, kicking field goals. Rasmussen's up a dummy half for Australia, a field goal attempt by Sims, and it's there. He kicked five field goals in about 10 minutes in a match in the 1960s, and because back then it was worth two points, and, mm. and you had Eric, who was so good at kicking them, he kicking the uh, kicking the scoreboard over, so the the New South Wales rugby league back then—that's what actually forced them to bring it back to one. They wanted to get the field goals out of the game because the likes of Eric were just too good at snapping them.
8: Great, shocked, and I had to think—you know, recognition. I played the game because I loved playing rugby league. I didn't worry me about getting trophies or anything. All I wanted to do was get the enjoyment out of playing rugby league.
3: I I can touch on um, Lionel Morgan briefly. I mean, to me, uh, certainly the first um, Aboriginal international player. He was from Tweed Heads,
8: and and he was
3: an outstanding winger. Um, He he represented the the Kangaroos in two tests against France in 1960, a World Cup match in England the same year, I think it it was.
4: But with perfect understanding and attacking in depth, Australia drives deep into French territory.
3: So he was a, a, a truly a great player, and, and that's that recognition of um, being the first Aboriginal player to play you know, for your country. So, um, yeah, he was a great player.
1: Yeah, and not without adversity as well, um, some racially uh, motivated attacks um, that he experienced yeah. as well.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he described a, a couple of incidents. One was a match in, in, in at Ipswich, and he was tackled over the sideline, and apparently the whole Ipswich team jumped on top of him, and he finished up. He was hospitalised because of the the injuries. And in another match, he was hospitalised again after being punched by a spectator. But these were the things that Aboriginal men and women uh, have
7: faced and continue to face. Hmm. You know, this racial abuse. Look, he was. Um he wasn't someone I really knew early on uh, following footy, but as you get older and that you want to go back to the roots of how everything started. So I did some I've done some reading on him over the years and my father has too. He's actually on a thesis on um on, you know, young black using sports and particularly rugby league to get uh, improve their lives and get off the mission. So and I think it was really significant that um he got the play for Australia because he was essentially well he was essentially the first black followers to be selected for a national team which was a pretty significant thing because back in those days you know at the um in the ni- early 1960s there was a completely different um country for us as people and you know we only had the referendum in 1967 so our people were always you know treated subhuman so to sort of get to get that exposure on the national stage and you know to for our, our young people to know that these things are starting to become possible when he broke through was a pretty significant um, milestone in the history of Aboriginal Rugby League.
4: It's taken Manly 27 minutes to get on the board. And Cliff Lyons, one of their stars this year, scored the try. Oh, another favourite.
3: Cliffy Lyons, syrup, he was born in Miranda in 1961, in started movement, his career with North Cliff Sydney. Lines, and he, he, he also so played so in England boarders. with Leeds and Sheffield. But it was with the, the Sea Eagles that Cliffy is best remembered. And he played over 300 games for the club. He was... A magical attacking player, fabulous hands, and I mean, I think of him you know he was like a magician or a or a conjurer, you know working a sleight of hand tricks. He could work magic with his hands and uh, send players through gaps and just a brilliant tactician. Coming
4: involved in the uh, movement, it went on to uh, Cliff lines. He beat Chris O'Sullivan pointlessly with a, a good palm. And, yeah, in you know, things,
3: things and that he true, he, won uh, he won two grand finals with Mandy. He won the Clive the Churchill medal in the 87 grand final as the best player on the ground, won the Daily M award for the best player of the year twice in 1990 and 94. He played six matches for New South Wales and played six times for the Kangaroos. Um, there was nothing that Cliffy didn't achieve. I mean, really, one of our truly greatest ever players. And then also, I think, a standout is he played for an Aboriginal team that played two tests against uh, Papua New Guinea in 1999. So, um, But, um, yeah, a great, um, a great Aboriginal player.
6: There's a little
4: coloured lad, Larry Coralworth by name.
7: Larry, the black flash, as we call him, eh? So, yeah, I don't know if it was official, but he was always known as um, the fastest player in the game. The fastest player in the game across the world, they used to say back then, you know, but um, they actually used to have those match races back then. I'm not sure if he ever went in one, but, geez, the black flash, he could move, mate. Um, You know, he was um, in that Balmain Tigers team in the early 80s. Uh, scored a, a bucket load of tries he's got um, an incredible record I think he might have played around a 100 games at the top level and he's probably scored about 70 tries so you know 70% chance he's going to score in every game that's pretty um, that's pretty handy uh, he also played you know for the blues and he played for um, Australia he scored tries at all levels as well and um, he's just a, he's just a, a beautiful humble person I, I had the pleasure of meeting him last year as well. Uh, so he's played for Balmain and Gold Coast. And you know the significance of someone's effect on the game, that when those two teams play each other um, in a preseason trial, they play for the Larry Corowa Shield. So that goes to show like how much um high esteem he's, he's held in over the years for what, what he's done. He's also listed um as one of the players in the 19 players pick for the Balmain Tigers team of the century as well. So, you know, the Balmain Tigers have been around a long time now. And if you can crack that side, it just goes to show, you know, how deadly you actually were.
1: Since 1908, Aboriginal people have not only fought for their inclusion within the game of rugby league, but have redirected state assimilation ambitions to carve out a place to showcase their talents and Aboriginal identity.
3: Well, it's the the same sort of thing, you know, with AFL. Suddenly in the late 60s, I mean, they suddenly realised the incredible untapped talent that was lying in Aboriginal communities. And when you look across the past 50 years, some of the greatest players in both those codes' histories have been Aboriginal players. And it's just, it was a, like an opening of a floodgate. And it's been incredible for us and incredible pride for our communities with the achievements of our players on the, the football field in both of those codes. And again, I hark back, sadly, so many were denied those opportunities in decades gone by. So, you know, it was, it was just the, the agency of being able to be in charge of your own lives and families and provide for them through football that is there and that that acceptance. So they were long overdue, the, both of those codes, but thankfully they're beginning to make up for it. But they still and those clubs um, still have a long way to go as does the wider community in, um, you know, our situation in this country today.
0: You know, you only had watched that, that game the other night and South the first half, they just blitzed them. You know, you, you between three players and they were all blackfellas. You know, they were outstanding on the night and, 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 the, and the wonderful spectacle of, of the other one, the other week against the Maris and, and, and the culture that was there. That's been there from the beginning of the time they were signed up. You know, when you see a black fella driving around a Rolls race, you know that he's made it.
1: That's Dan Sultan featuring Meg Mac, with Reaction. You also heard from Uncle Vic Sims, Emeritus Professor John Maynard, Professor Heidi Norman, Uncle Lyle Munro, Jr., and NITV's Jodan Berry. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we bring you highlights from the recent Antidote Festival hosted by the Sydney Opera House.
7: Um, I think Uncle Richard Wally
0: from WWA. Once said that you know, English has this extraordinary uh, vocabulary. It's a hodgepodge language which takes many influences, derivations, and sources to create what is English today. But in our languages, vocabularies are much smaller. Not to say it's the, la- the languages are spare, but they're just as rich mm. and poetic as, as English. Are you stunned sometimes by the, the economy in our languages? I mean, I'm talking about the word for bark in many of our languages is the word for skin. The mm. river might also be the Milky Way. A bend in the river might be the crook of your elbow. Yeah. That
9: metaphor. I know that spider and five are the same word in Maradri mm-hmm. And that word is also used for fish and that all countries So mara. I, I love that about language and also that language is so intimately related with the land which I spoke about before. Last year I travelled through all through the Kimberley I guess and the Central Desert as well. So I got to cross many different language groups and spend time with TOs in different places and I was always blown away at I'd ask the name for a medicine plant in one place and then 50 Ks down the road would ask, oh, this is this here and they'd be like, no. I'm like, what? They're like, we don't have a name for it here. Mm-hmm why don't you have a name for that one here because just over just over here th- that has a different name and they'd say oh well it could be that that is in relationship you know we don't want to overuse this medicine plant here so there's no name for it mm-hmm. that way when mob travel there's a name for it when we go to that place um, and they'll be able to to use it and share it and I think that relationship between the land and language but also the use of plants and animals and the relationship that we have with um, the kinship of things and the, the way that we eat or consume or use plants and animals is also part of language that's mm. not always explicitly spoken about and I like that
1: This episode was produced by myself, Jay McAllister. The sound engineer was Andrei Shabanov. Speaking Out is on social media via ABC Indigenous, and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. I'm Jay McAllister, and this is Speaking Out.